the only way to create a humane, scalable organization that allows every individual to realize their fullest potential is that servant leadership model, whereby there is no us and them. There's no them. There's only us, right? There's no you and me. There's only us. And that not only creates a more efficient and effective organization and one in which people can grow, but from the CEO's perspective, it's a hell of a lot more fun. Welcome to the Reboot Podcast. Hi. This is Dan Putt, one of the partners here at Reboot. Do you remember when you learned how to ride a bike? Did you ever feel frustrated and perhaps direct that frustration outwardly? I remember my learning experience very, very clearly. I can still see the way the reds and the yellows of the evening reflected off the windows in the front of my house and how cool the bright green grass was beneath me and how pissed I was at my mother. Why, I wondered. Why was she wasting my time? Why bother withholding the secret of balance? Just tell me. Why let me fall and fall off my bike into the dewy grass? Well, as badly as she wanted to tell me, and I'm sure it was hard for her to see me fall, the only way for me to learn was to feel my way through it, to do it on my own. She could support, but not fix. She could support, but not do. She could support, but not tell. My mom understood in order for me to grow, she needed to let go. For leaders, the temptation to tell and fix and even do is so strong. I know the way. I have the answers. The buck stops with me. Sometimes it's impossible to resist the ego boost of giving the answer, giving the fix, telling the way. But what impact does that have on the team? What impact does it have on the leader? And is it even true? Jerry is joined today by Patrick Campbell, co-founder and CEO of Price Intelligently, a bootstrapped company in Boston. Patrick and Jerry explore different leadership styles, the power of Patrick's If I Die docs, and how the secret to leadership may not lie in having the right answers, but in asking the right questions. A leader is best when people barely know he exists. When his work is done, his aim fulfilled, they will say, we did it ourselves. Lao Tzu. Hey, Patrick, it's really great to have you on the show. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, absolutely. Great to be here. Yeah. Patrick, why don't you take a minute and just introduce yourself and, and, and then we'll sort of dive in and we'll talk about what we're hoping to talk about today. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I'm the CEO and co-founder of Price Intelligently. We're a pricing software company here in Boston, Mass. And we also make something called ProfitWell, which is uh, financial metrics for subscription companies. Mm. Um, going deeper than just the LinkedIn resume, uh, mm. I, uh, I'm a Midwesterner. I'm from Wisconsin, uh, born and raised out there. Um, went to school in Illinois. And uh, prior to uh, founding Price Intelligently with my co-founders, Worked in uh, worked at Google and kind of big corporate tech, and then I also worked for the U.S. government um, in in Intel. So lots of fun stories there that we might uh, might have to take away from the the final cut of this. No, no, I, we're going to keep it all in. <laughs> Everything stays in here. All right. So the first thing I, that I have to ask about is Wisconsin. What city? Because uh, many people may know uh, that our, my co-founder and our, our partner. Uh, Ali Schultz was born in Eau Claire. So, oh, awesome! Yeah, so I um, I'm from a small town called Jackson, Wisconsin. So, I always used to say, you know, there's there's more a town with more cows than people, um, mm-hmm. which was was the truth. I think up until a few years ago, but um, I'm on the other part of the state, north of Milwaukee. Um, so basically, like an hour outside of Milwaukee. Parents both work in um, either downtown or in uh, the suburbs. But yeah, it was a Fascinating upbringing, um, growing up in kind of the country and um, having a little bit of that country lifestyle, especially uh, in the context of, of good old Wisconsin. All right. So, so you know, um, I have come to own up to the fact that I am fascinated with the Midwest. 
Um, <laughs> you know, Dan Putt, who does the intros on these shows, is from Ohio, and nice. uh, Allie's from Wisconsin, as I said. And I'm going to do something, even though we're only recording the audio, I'm going to do something that I've seen my Wisconsin friends do all the time, which is I'm holding up my hand and I'm pointing to the part right here, <laughs> smiling because you know what I'm talking about. You point to the part of the state. <laughs> exactly. From Michigan, Wisconsin, Bob states there. Yeah, it's a good time. I mean, yeah. it gets, um, I don't know, it's kind of fascinating because met, I've met a lot of like Wisconsin and um, Midwesterners, even in Boston. We're based in Boston, um, you know, in the tech scene. I think it, it attracts a, a certain a certain type of person and the Midwesterners are typically built properly for that, which is great. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I just realized, uh, uh, one of my other partners, Jim Marsden is, uh, from Michigan. So, there you go. so again, you hold up the hand. <laughs> and, right? yeah, yeah. yeah. Except for those youpers, right up there. Up yeah, there. yeah. 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 He's Nest, not, he's not, not a new, yeah. yeah, he's not a youper. That's for sure. So, that's so that, that's good. We got that out of the way and, and, sure. you know, I think that, that, Part of the reason um, the whole connection with the Midwest I find so powerful is that, in my experience, there's a, there's a kind of work ethic that uh, I can often attribute to people from the Midwest that, in, in a funny way, reminds me of my grandfather, who um, emigrated from Italy uh, at the turn mm. of the 20th century. And um, it was a kind of like, we just we just get up in the morning and we do our shit. Yeah, <laughs> you know. You just described my father basically. <laughs> well, tell me about that. I mean, yeah. as, and as people who've listened to the podcast know, I often end up with "Tell me about your father." So, tell sure. me about your father. Yeah. Um, I don't know if there's. I mean, there's obviously not a you know a, a closed market for work ethic, but but I would say like I I have found that historically that 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 is to be the case. You know that there's this classic. Um, whether it's a stereotype or the truth, I, I think I find it more truth than not. But like my dad, you know, I come from a very blue collar family. So, um, you know, it's the first person to go to college, like that kind of a classic, you know, upbringing. Um, I was a little bit of the black sheep as like the the nerdy smart kid, that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, my, my dad's extremely intelligent, but he's one of those guys who, um, you know, he's a tinner. He was a sheet metal worker for, you know, 30 years working outside on skyscrapers. And now he's an HVAC guy. But I think the the classic thing about my dad, which has taught me a phenomenal amount is he's the kind of guy where it's, it's, a, it's, it's no nonsense in the sense of like, there's not a lot of BS. He goes to work and he, he expects that, you know, for his labor, you know, he's going to get a fair wage benefits, you know, he's going to get a week off a year, two weeks off a year, whatever it is. And, you know, he's going to kind of live his life that way. And, you know, that's not a uncommon story, what I just said, but kind of guy he is. And I think a lot of Midwesterners are like this is they get um, actually obsessed with learning, um, which is really fascinating where my dad comes home and, you know, he's not a guy who's like watching TV every night. He actually has this huge library of old textbooks and old like trade manuals that, you know, we make fun of him for going to secondhand bookstores. And that's, you know, where he gets most excited is when he finds like this old manual about, you know, sheet metal or steam or something. And um, then he spends all his time, you know, doing that. And, you know, prior to that, he was, um, he's a, just retired from the Navy. He was a Navy reservist for 20 years. And um, it's one of those things where like people there don't stop. Like they just don't stop. Like, yeah, they, they spend a lot of time at the bar. They spend a lot of time watching Packer games, but like they got some sort of hobby. My mom's a hardcore quilter. You know, that's all she does besides work and spending time with her grandkid. And um, I think it really speaks to that work ethic where they just kind of don't stop and they obsess about some some different things, even if they're not necessarily, uh, you know, cool to us, you know, other folks out there. You know, it's like, Oftentimes when I do these podcast conversations, I wish that the audience could actually see somebody's face because I wish they could see your face as you're talking about yeah. both your mom and your dad. And I don't mean to presume that, you know, every day was, was a great relationship because, you know, we're human. Yeah, absolutely. But um, I can feel the pride that you feel. Yeah. You know, and in 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 you know, that image of your dad and uh you know, I think it's really powerful. I think being able to connect back into that 
that role model is really powerful. Does that yeah. resonate with you? Yeah, I think it does. I think, um, you know, like all, like all parents, you know, there's no perfect parent, right? Mm-hmm. And um, as I remind myself, as I think about being a parent myself, you yeah. know, I've got three <laughs> kids. So go ahead. Yes. I'm sorry. But um, yeah, so, you know, <laughs> I'll leave that one there for a second. <laughs> but I think, you know, with my, I think my parents, like they did, you know, the, the, you know, I wasn't an easy child either. So let's, let's hedge that. And so I think I learned a lot about, you know, what, what to do and a lot of like, you know, maybe I, I wanted to do a little bit differently, you know, in my life, which I think is just a part of, you know, being a, you know, someone who grows up. Right. And, um, but yeah, I absolutely like, you know, it's that classic cliche of like, oh, damn it. That's from, you know, <laughs> that's, that's my mom right there. That's my dad right there. And I think, you know, Overall, like I'm, I'm extremely gracious for the upbringing that I had because um, we didn't always have a lot of cash. Like you know, we were you know lower middle class. Um, you know because you know we had a job. My dad's a union guy, which we argue about all the time. Um, and he um, you know had some hard times. You know just because of strikes and stuff like that. But it's one of those things where like they always just kept going. And and I think that's that's something that's very admirable. And you know you could cross-reference that with the whole millennial debate that's happening right now in the wake of, um, you know, some of the the blog posts that are being written about, oh, I deserve this, I don't deserve that, that kind of thing. And, um, you know, it's it's one of those things where a lot of that generation, they just, you know, they might piss and moan about a lot of stuff, but they're also like, we just have to keep going, you know? And I think that's something that's really admirable about them. Yeah, yeah, you know, it, uh, you know, I think that there's, and again, I'm not going to suggest that there's sort of a, uh, a perfectly correct way to be existentially to be with work. But, you know, as you were describing that, I was thinking of my own father and the role that the union that he was in played in. Now, my father passed about 20, 23 years ago. Um, and when we were kids, I, I'm one of seven siblings and I'm number six, so I was at the at the back end, or at the hand me down end, <laughs> right? Because I didn't get it. Or get, some sometimes it came around, right? Cause yeah. Things were so worn out, you had to get the new stuff. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes, <laughs> rarely. Um, but uh, you know, my most favorite thing was getting the hand me down Catholic school uniforms. You know. Oh, there you go. Yeah. But uh, and we struggled a lot of times to actually have enough money to pay bills and mm. and even sometimes food. Although I think my parents did a, tried to do a good job of hiding that fact from us. Um, and, and there were many times where the union stepped in. And it wasn't the union per se, but it was the other folks in the union. Yeah, that brotherhood or that, that camaraderie. And yeah. I think what's fascinating is you... So I'm an, I'm an economist, you know, in my background. My background's econometrics and math. And that's mainly the argument that I have with my, you know, my parents a lot of times, you know, because it's like for a tech company, like, like I worked at Google for a while and like a union at Google would be crazy. You know, they take such good care of you. And, but I think that the one thing that a lot of entrepreneurs, particularly founders don't have around them is that, um, I don't really know what the the gender neutral term is, but the the brotherhood or that camaraderie um, around them um, to you know lean on folks or in those hard times, you know, not necessarily lean on them for you know food and clothing, but you know something something along the lines of like you know mentally lean on them or hey I'm you know I'm out of work the company went bust can I get some contract work like that kind of thing and I think that you know as you're alluding to that's that is one huge positive, you know, aspect. I got an older brother who's, you know, also a blue collar guy. He's an electrician and, you know, starting out, yeah, he's traveling around, but he's always guaranteed a job, you know, once he was an apprentice and a journeyman. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating, you know, how, how helpful that can be. Yeah. I mean, it, what it brings to mind is this notion that we often work with, which is the, you know, the benefit of knowing that you're not alone. Yeah. And, uh, you know, a few months back, we, we broadcast a conversation between Ian Hogarth from Songkick and Yancey Strickler from Kickstarter. And, and they talked really beautifully about 
the relationship between the two of them and the way in which they just kind of reach out across the Atlantic and support each other, CEO mm. to CEO. That's awesome. Know. And it's not quite that sort of union brotherhood that you're talking about, that union sort of camaraderie of, you know, the kind of guild. We're in this together in that way. Sure. But, but this notion of, of is there a way, in a gender-neutral way, because I, I, think, I think you're pointing that out as really important, to really foster a sense of connectedness among yeah. entrepreneurs. And, you know, so much of what, what we're about at Reboot is really about people talking without bullshit, without filters, yeah. without spinning each other, without, you know, about the ups and downs of yeah. what it's like to really try to build something, you know? And yeah. I mean, that's one of the reasons we, we actually invited you on the show because, you know, we know a little bit about your story and I'm going to ask you to, to go into it a little bit more. But, um, you know, one of the things, and, and I wonder if it has to do with your Wisconsin blue-collar roots, but one of the things that comes so clearly across is, um, how do I put this? There's a kind of authenticity about you. That's mm. that's unassuming, but also unafraid. Mm. Oh, that's very nice of you. I think that's it's <laughs> probably the best way someone's described it. So <laughs> appreciate that. I'll have to share that with my team here and see that's if right. they, well, they well, agree with you. Or we'll, not. we'll explain that to people. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. And I think I think that that um, you know I was looking forward to just hearing a little bit more about your story. Um, you know, from what I from what I know, Price Intelligently, you you all sort of founded it by, if I remember correctly, you left Google and uh, sort of dove into bootstrapping your own business. Yeah. So, um, so I, I worked for the U.S. government. I kind of mentioned that I worked in U.S. Intel. You know, doing value modeling and um, it's a big fancy way of you know saying building you know, different formulas with data to try and find, you know, targets and things like that. And um, what was fascinating about it is, you know, I, I was there and, you know, I ran into the public bureaucracy, right? You know, which is like, ah, you know, this person's been here for 30 years and, you know, people joke that he or she hasn't, you know, worked in the past 10, you know, because of, you know, the government thing and things move slow. And so I got a little, you know, annoyed with that and went, you know, worked at Google and, you know, ran into another bureaucracy, right? You know, I was working on some some products for them that, um, well, I was in sales, but I, you know, I noticed that I wasn't really a differentiable person relative to my peers because, you know, I got hired in with a lot of Ivy League kids and, um, you know, just brilliant, you know, but they also had the degree. And so I was, you know, hey, I got to go learn to code to kind of separate myself and, Sort of building some tools that you know I scaled and you know made Google more money and um, couldn't get resources because of the bureaucracy and um, but one of the, the the biggest things that I think really shaped me now and I'm kind of laying the groundwork for is um, when I was at Google I actually got um, cancer so it wasn't you know wasn't hugely dramatic you know I, I prefaced that because you know, it wasn't stage four, stage five, like, you know, I'm not a medical miracle or anything like that. But um, it was, you know, serious enough that, you know, I went through treatment, surgeries, some more treatment, um, you know, I, but what was fascinating at Google was like my, my boss, after I told him was just like, hey, like, if you just want to leave for a quarter and just not, you know, be here and get paid and everything, like, that's cool. And, um, it was just one of those fascinating things where you're like, oh my God, this culture is amazing. Like this is an amazing place. And, um, but the, the unfortunate flip side of that, at least for, you know, me being a full-time employee at Google was that, um, I, you know, had the realization that I think a lot of, you know, you know, millennials, let's say to, to kind of talk about that category are having, which is, oh my God, like, you know, do I want to work here, like sit on this golden treadmill, which is amazing. And I can't, I don't want to complain because like, you know, I'm getting paid way too much for my actual skills. Like it's like Disneyland for adults. Like it's amazing, but like I'm selling AdWords, you know, <laughs> like it's not like, it's not fulfilling, you know, it's amazing. And like, you feel bad because like the people you work with are, are awesome. Like it's like, you, you can't get better, but, um, 
you know, you, you're you're not really fulfilled from a from an occupation standpoint. And so, um, long story short, you know, I jumped out um, from there. I did work at another startup for about a year um, in Boston because I I kind of admitted to myself, and I was you know I was very naive at Google. I was like, oh, I've done this stuff, and you know, I can go start a company. Like I'm smart, blah blah blah, and. Then I, I don't know what, it, actually, I don't know what it was. I think it was actually Jay who, you know, I don't know if we talked about when the tape was rolling, but um, so I worked with him at Google, actually, and he had left. He's a little bit older. He had left and, a little and bit And Jay's last night. name is a, a Kunzo. Oh, Kunzo. So, yeah, 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 yeah. It's yeah. one of those Italian. Yeah, one of those, forget those guys. Yeah. The, those those guys, vowels, right? you know. <laughs> yeah, um, those paisans, as I'm That's told. Right. That's I'm always right. scared paisan's a naughty word. No, no, <laughs> paisan is a good thing. Yeah, Trust I know. We have a, You're we have paisan, a, hey. Yeah, yeah, so we have a... We have a, a Zotto here and a Apolina. Uh, uh-huh. I, I think that's how you, or Antonina is her, her real name. She goes by Nina. But so I'm always like, oh, Paisan. And I'm always scared I'm saying the wrong word. But um, yeah, so I, I, I think it was talking to Jay, or I think I went to a meetup and I was like, oh, holy shit, I have no idea what I'm doing. Um, so I went and worked for another company in Boston called Jim Vara. Um, and that's where I first. Um, you know, I was I was kind of like a strategic initiatives guy, so I was working on like everything from project management and um, product management all the way to like building spreadsheets to give sales reps or customer service reps, you know, different documents that they needed to streamline stuff. And um, I was working on pricing for for one of my projects, and that's kind of when I realized, um, you know, holy cow, like. You know, this is a huge issue because we would make changes and we would see enormous like lift um, or enormous like cratering of, right. of different, you know, directions. And um, then, you know, I was like, oh, like no one knows anything about this. No one does anything about it. Like they just kind of throw stuff against the wall and, and kind of go from there. So that's kind of the, the backstory up, up at least until like starting the company. And I was getting a little antsy at that um, company. It was about 60, 70 people. And um, I'd met a couple of my co-founders who um, were, you know, some good product folks in Boston and just kind of jumped out from there. And, you know, I'll, I'll pause there in case, like, <laughs> I could provide any more detail because I know I just kind of gave you the tome of my life history for the past well, couple of years. Uh, no, it, it was great. I mean, it really gave, gave the context and, it, and, you know, it's sparking a whole bunch of uh, thoughts for me. One of which is, is so as I understand it correctly, you then bootstrapped the start of Price Intelligently? Yeah, so we started off, um, so one of the guys in the three of us, um, we sold a small like little product to um, a company called Crashlytics. So they got bought by Twitter eventually, um, and they, I don't even know if they would remember that they bought it. It was not for a large sum of money. It was like, you know, like, I don't even know if it was five digits, like very low amount of money. Um, and so we used that as like, you know, the start, cashed in my 401k from Google. And these two guys were part-time initially, which is like a whole another thing that we could talk about and, and the struggles with, with that kind of arrangement. Um, yeah, and we just started self-funded. And the main reason was is we probably could have raised money initially um, just on like idea, name, all that kind of stuff. And keep in mind, this is, I mean, we're talking 2012 at this point and like, well, t- middle of 2012 and like cash was starting to become fairly plentiful and cheap. Um, and so, um, but we didn't know like this amorphous problem of pricing, like we didn't know like, okay, this is the thing we're going to build or like, this is what we're going to focus on. And um, so we started in the first six months, you know, didn't really make, we didn't make any money. Um, and then like from there, we finally made like enough to, like I made a decision and it was just me full time at this point. Um, those guys were helping out as, you know, in the nights and weekends a little bit here and there. And then it was like, all right, do I hire first employee to like take this part off of my plate or do I pay myself? Um, and I, Hopefully, in hindsight, a good decision. Hired Peter Zotto, who is basically our GM of Price Intelligently at this point, and he, um, you know, he was our, our, our first on on board. And um, yeah, we kind of went from there. So yeah, self funded. We haven't raised a dime of funding. Um, all customer, you know, focused. And 
um, have grown. I mean, we're about 20 people now, which is great. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I've been sitting here thinking about is how do you think your experience of growing up watching your parents, growing up in Wisconsin, growing up being the sort of odd, nerdy guy, if you will. <laughs> yeah, um, I like that. How do you think, it, if anything, it influenced your decision to sort of do it as a bootstrap? Um, I, don't, I don't know, actually. I think that's a really good question. I think, like, if I take a step back, I would actually argue that my upbringing made me more risk averse, at least from like things that I learned from my family, because like, you know, it's kind of a a risk averse lifestyle, right? Like you're, you're a laborer, so you're getting paid for your time essentially. And, um, you know, it's one of those like, you know, labor skilled traits. Let's be, you know, Mm -hmm. my dad listened to that and let me for it. But, uh, you know, and so it's, it's one of those things where, you know, you, you could always probably find a job, but it's not necessarily something that you like try to test. You know, you're not like, oh, I'm going to go take this risk, you know. But I would say that it probably actually influenced me more in a positive direction just because I had that foundation behind me. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, was able to go to college, like, and was intuitive enough that like if everything like hit the fan, my what I always said during that point when my parents were like, I can't believe you left Google. Now you're leaving this other company that has you know 50 million in funding. Like, what are you doing? And it was more like I can always find a job. Like I can always find a job. You know, I can always you know find enough to live essentially. So, but I do think that kind of, and I'm reflecting out loud here a little bit. I would say that the the work ethic aspect I think probably influenced it a lot because. I just think that, you know, maybe naively, it was one of those things where it was like, well, did we go raise a million, you know, and, and on, you know, some decent valuation? And it's like, well, yeah, or we could just work hard the next three months and like <laughs> right. you know, get to that point that we, our, our goal is. Because right. once you get on like the investor treadmill, like you, you have to stay on it because there's, you know, higher expectations and you kind of keep going. And yeah, I think if, if I didn't, work and I know everyone does this, but like for us, for, for, you know, at least for the record, like if I didn't work like 18 hour days, you know, six days a week, seven days a week, sometimes for those first six to nine months, like we, we probably would have needed to raise money just because, and I'm not, you know, not having a hero complex there. I'm just like from just a time and deliverable standpoint, like, you know, it was one of those things where, you know, time and, and cash are fungible, right? And so we were able to basically, like, you know, take some, take some cash off the clock just because we were putting a lot of time in. See, I, I, I had a sense that, that there, there was a connection here, hence my question. But I think that I'm going to posit a theory, which is that it's a little bit different than what you just described. Mm. I think that even if you had raised a million dollars, you still would have worked 18-hour days. yeah. Because, that's true. Because I, I, don't really, I don't really have a lot of friends, Jerry. So <laughs> because, well, the, the math nerd. But here's my theory. See, I grew up in very similar circumstances, all right, albeit in Brooklyn, not in Wisconsin. Mm. And so you're saying this, you could beat me up. That's what you're saying. I could totally like. kick your ass. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Love but, it. Um, but I think that, you know, growing up in the circumstances that I grew up in, I used to always say this, come hell or high water, I know that I can make money. I don't always know that I could raise money. I don't know, always know that I can succeed in the game, right? Yeah. You know, the game playing. Absolutely. But, but I can always count on me. No, it's, that's... Does that resonate with you? That opens up a lot of lines of thought, yeah. Because I think it's, you know, there's a negative aspect to that too, right? Tell like, me. you're not a coach, you're a player, right? Like, mm-hmm. you're not coaching enough because you're like, ah, I'll just do it, you know, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. And I think that's true. I mean, I, I, my confidence in raising money now is a hell of a lot more, like, if we needed to raise around tomorrow, like, I'd know who to go to, i know what the pitch would look like, you know. But, you know, back then, I had, like, very little confidence in it. Like, um, 
and I'm not saying, you know, that's, that's a bad thing necessarily, but um, yeah, I think, I think that's hundred percent resonates. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, and, and, and I think, you know, I often cite my grandfather whose, whose work ethic to me taught me this, which was a good entrepreneur always makes sure that there's more money at the end of the day than there was at the beginning of the day. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, yeah. and that means like, you know, the point of building a business is actually to make profit. Yeah. It's not. I it. Go ahead. Yeah. I think I look at it a little bit differently. I, I like at the end of the day, absolutely. Like if, mm. if you had to, you know, is it that or not? I would say, yeah. I think for me, and, and this has kind of been like combining the work ethic, but also the like, oh shit moment at Google. I think for me, it's not just like, it's, it's the efficiency of time, right? Like, you know, so money at the end of the day might actually equate to, you know, we have these these things that we've kind of implemented. We call them, um, it's very morbid, but we say, if I die docs. Like everyone has an if I die doc, which is like, this is what I do. Here's all my like Google docs connected, all those types of things. And I think like that was a big, big part of early on, which was like, you know, okay, how do we, how do we make an hour create five hours, if that makes sense? Mm-hmm. Like how can we structure the business in a way where, you know, profit might not come for a while, cash might not come for a while, or it might not be enough, but like, how can we boost the efficiency? So a little bit of a tangent there, but I think mm-hmm. that's kind of how it would shape, you know, at the end of the day, you know, it's all about profit. I think it is, but it's, it's when that profit's realized, which is, you know, some, some variation, which I would, you know, agree or disagree with. Yeah. You know, the image I just got was like the, if I die doc uh, is both, it's it a bit of an insurance policy. Right, so you all are connected to each other to know what's going on, but it's also a a means by which you seem to be really focusing on efficacy, efficiency, and effectiveness. And yeah. I'm wondering if if your background is an economist, right? It was economics that you majored. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, really, sort of led to some of that. Yeah, I think it's. I don't know if it was. The, I mean, I. Like, you know, the, the old classic, like, how many utiles does this create, you know, of happiness or of value or something like that? I think, to me, it's actually more about, um, you know, there's a chance that I could die, right? Like, and I, I, I don't, you know, fear death in the sense of, like, you know, I, I, you know, I'm scared of it. I don't feel like I've done enough. It's more like I've come to the terms of, you know, to produce a truly valuable business. So, like, we're talking about something that compounds and grows and things like that. Um, it can't, and this is a little antithetical to what we just talked about, but like, it can't solely rely on me, if that makes sense. Like, I'm still going to put those 18 hour days in, but like, I can't be a linchpin in different aspects of the business. It has to be one of those things where, you know, if I die, like, you know, especially with, you know, background with cancer and stuff like that, like, um, you know, and, and it's, it's, it's interesting when like I go to talk to other CEOs and CEO groups and stuff like that, how, you know, in, in some companies, and um, I don't think it's necessarily because they're venture backed, but in a lot of companies that have pressure, very high pressure boards, um, you know, because of you know different involvement and different leverage and things like that, most of those folks will try to hoard as much power and leverage as they can. Um, and I think I try to like dissipate as much power and leverage as I can. Um, you know, this whole concept of servant leadership. To throw another tangent here. Um, mainly because I think that's the only way that we're going to continue to, you know, be as profitable as we are and continue to grow and, um, you know, ensure that we are as efficient and, you know, effective as we can be because we're building a machine. We're not necessarily building, you know, places for people, you know, to, to be placed into some of these problems. So not sure if that's exceptionally clear or not, but, um, oh, I, it, that's kind of how I think it, about it. It feels super clear and it feels super interesting because what, I, what I think you're doing is you're something that I often feel like I do myself, which is connect a deeper philosophical point of view with a very pragmatic on the ground, Mm. Uh, uh, expression. So, for example, your encounter with death, which you could argue is really an encounter with life, meaning sure. it forces you to sort of clarify and and really think through 
your relationship to living mm. not only altered uh, the balance of, of your relationship with uncertainty and, and growth, but also leads you, in a sense, to create a much more scalable and, by argument, much more efficient approach to management. I mean, what yeah. you just described is the essence of a lot of one-on-one coaching I will do with a CEO where I talk about servant leadership, not necessarily because it's ethically and morally uh, a more functional way, um, but it's also a much more scalable model yeah. for leadership to hire yeah. and empower and hold accountable a set of really talented people means that the work spreads throughout the organization. And, oh, by the way, if the leader is no longer available for some reason, death being one, but fundraising might be another reason. Yeah, yeah, all of the above. All of the above, then all of a sudden the organization uh, becomes something much greater than any one individual. And um, I'm remembering a quote from Jay's Medium post where you said, nobody works for me, we're in this together. I want to build something that can outlast me. Yeah. Is, is, this no, an, is this an expression of what we were just talking about? Yeah, absolutely. And it's, I think you, I think Jay doctored, I sounded much more profound there than I think I actually was. <laughs> but um, I think, um, I, 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 I think it is, it aligns with that because I think for me, like going down a little bit more of the servant leadership thread here, it's, it's, um, I was always very uncomfortable with the like you work for me CEOs or like people that I encountered. Um, and I, I, I you know, I, I've heard more horror stories than I've experienced, if that makes sense. So I didn't, I haven't really had like a, you know, too horrible of experience there. But um, I think that what I have found, at least personally, and keep in mind that we're a 20 person company. So this might not work at 100 people, it might not work at 500,000, et cetera. But um, I think what I've always found is there's, you know, there's a lot more power in our as you as you've been insinuating rather than mine, if that makes sense. And so, um, it's been fascinating to kind of see that play out because it does have its problems, right? Because you know, if you're trying to move extremely quickly and you have to maybe debate something, you know, rather than just hey, you have to do this. Um, I think that you know you you might move a little bit slower, but if you hire the right people, you put them in the right place, put the guardrails up like you should, then they should just do what they've been hired for, right? And and so I think um, I get very uncomfortable with, and I know I, it's funny because I said it as, you know, not as a, um, as a, in the sense that we're talking about, but I said my team before. And as soon as I say that, every anytime like I say that or like, oh yeah, like, you know, they work for Price Intelligently or they work, you know, whatever, I'm always, I get really uncomfortable. Like I, I you could probably roll the tape back if you're recording the video and see like, I kind of like jolted a little bit because I like it's it's you know oh I have to ask our team and causes a little confusion because people are like oh what do you do there and I was like oh I'm CEO it's like oh so you it's your team and I'm like nah it's 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 a weird thing to like own up to I guess but yeah long story short like I, I think that that's definitely a reflection of you know what we've been talking about well Patrick I got to tell you that that um, for years I've been extolling the virtues of what I call the upside down pyramid which yeah. is an expression of what we're talking about here. Awesome. And for years, I've added to that by saying things like, the only way to create a humane, scalable organization that allows every individual to realize their fullest potential is that servant leadership model, whereby there is no us and them. There's no them. There's only us, right? There's no you and me. There's only us. And that not only creates a more efficient and effective organization and one in which people can grow, but from the CEO's perspective, it's a hell of a lot more fun. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I think it, 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 yeah, it is. I would say, I think there's, there's some, I mean, it's definitely, cha- sure. Yeah. There's definitely challenges. I mean, you know, sure. like George Bush once said, you know, uh, there's a lot of efficiency in being a dictator. Yeah, absolutely.
but it also all ends up on your shoulders. Yeah. And what's really fascinating is that I, so we, we talk to a lot of companies just because of the nature of our work, you know, mm-hmm. pricing's, you know, everything you do either leads to your pricing or is used to justify your pricing in your business. And, um, when we, and that means we deal with a lot of the CEOs and, you know, founders and stuff like that and the companies we work with. And, um, it's, it's almost, we can almost predict based on what we're talking about, like, depending on like, if the, if the CEO feels that like he or she is like the only one who knows anything and like, you know, any data, no matter how strong you put in front of them, it's like, if it disagrees with their assumptions, like, like, those types of CEOs, like we, we can almost predict how things are going to go. Um, not then, necessarily with the project. How do things go? How do things go? I think a lot, of, like, I can't name the names, but a lot of them are out of business. Right. See, see what, what you're confirming is something that I've been teaching for, for many, many years, is that this is the way to build lasting, sustainable companies. It's not necessarily the way to build really, really seductively attractive products that get acquired by big companies. But if what you're really interested in is building companies that are employing people a hundred years from now, this is what you've got to do. Yeah. Well, and I think it's, it's what's, what's ironic about it is that a lot of times, like, you know, my peers, they feel like doing the more, let's just say the dictator approach, which Maybe that's a little strong, but like doing a very like top down approach. Top down, right side up. Yeah. Pyramid. Right. Sure, sure. I think I think what the problem there is is a lot of times, like you're not actually hedging as much risk as you think you are, mm. um, because you're eventually going to break down. Like if, you know, if if you look at the you know the early to growth stage, you're looking at what three four years, and like you can't you can't work eighteen hour days for three four years or put enough time for a top down approach. Um, and eventually like it's, it's, you know, you, you have not admitted your like ignorance. I also would argue because a lot of times like, like I, it's, it's fascinating because I, and I know some of these types of CEOs just in the Boston community and, you know, I'll be hanging out and, you know, we'll be doing something after work or something to meet up and they'll be arguing, you know, a non-technical co-founder CEO will be arguing about very technical things. And it's, it's, it's not that they are incapable of making a decision there. It's more just like, don't you trust your CTO? Like who has been doing that specifically? Um, and what we always say, or what I try to always say here at Price Intelligently is like, even if I know more about sales than our top salesperson, I'm not thinking about that 24-7. He or she is thinking about that 24-7. So like, I'm always going to speed bump them. And what's what we call it, which is basically like, hey, I, I might disagree with this point or what do you think of that? But he or she's always going to have the final word because they're going to live or die by their performance, you know, and um, long story short, I think it's, you know, there's, there's some advantages, disadvantages of both, but we see, yeah, we see most of the failures are, you know, are, are risked even higher because of that type of a leadership style. Yeah. You know, and, and I, I, and I saw you just do something very subtly, which is, which I think is really important. Not only did you, did you note the capacity to speed bump things, but, you talked about who ultimately has the responsibility, which is the domain owner. Yeah. And, but you did something very subtle, but very important, which is by talking about giving that person the ultimate authority and agency over the decision, you also noted that they are going to be held accountable because they yep. are the ones who are going to live and die by the decision. Yeah. And, and you know, too often when people try to go for this more scalable model, um, staffs tend to enjoy the impairment, but yeah. are frightened of being held accountable. <laughs> yeah, which is tough because if you have a baked in, and what's great about that is that de-risks my job as well. Yes. Like when I go to the board and it's like, these numbers aren't you know working, like maybe if I trust this person too much and you know they continue not to work then it's on my head but it's more like oh well it's not working then let's get rid of that person and, and replace them or do something like that and but I think that like to your point I think and that's what you see and I, I don't I don't know too much about like Tony Shea and Zappos and the whole arcracy and stuff like that but I think that 
you know, if we had to look at the spectrum, that might be way too far on on the other side of the spectrum. Because I, I it, think so. Yeah, and I, I'm not totally up on everything mm-hmm. with that, so I don't want to speak too much to it. But I think I think that they, from my end, it's like accountability isn't like a big central piece of it, like mm. true accountability, because there's not really any boss or structure, and you know, there's goals, but they're not quite. There's no teeth necessarily in them, and um, I might be getting it totally wrong. So hopefully, you don't get a bunch of mean tweets about how I don't understand the holarchy or stuff like that. But um, yeah, I think it's it's definitely a different side of the spectrum. Yeah, and uh, you know, I think I think that that uh, again, here again, I heard you parsing the responsibility. What I think is correctly, you know, I, I spent many years as board members and. Over, over the years, probably served on over 100 boards of directors. And, you know, what you said was, you know, it de-risked your job as CEO when you created this kind of twinning of empowerment and accountability. I think you're absolutely right. But it didn't entirely de-risk it. That is, sure. it placed the risk exactly on where it is. Your job is actually to build the right team. Yeah. And if you make a mistake there and do not fix it, then, then your yeah. job is on the line. Well, the buck all ultimately stops with me, right? You know, and I think that's that's kind of like it's a little bit of the risk in this type of model too, which is like especially coming from someone who's, you know, the the put your the martyr complex or whatever, you know, putting the team on your back, like oh, I'll just do it, you know, I'll put the extra hours in rather than like you know scaling this is that conflicts with you know, the whole concept of like, all right, I'm going to trust this person. Like trust is a huge thing with this. It's like, I'm going to trust that I, uh, myself, that I hired the right person and then I'm going to trust this person to do their job. And, um, you know, it's, it's definitely like, I'm not, I'm not going to pretend like there were no growing pains with this type of a model at all. Like I think every, um, you know, every main exec that we've hired, it's been a little bit of like, you know, trust building, it's been a huge aspect to like trust that things, you know, are getting done and, and me being able to like, you know, put that trust on them as well. Yeah. Well, but I, I, I think, I don't think we ever started talking about what's the easy way to build a business. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We were talking actually about the, the more effective way to build a business. That's yeah. what we've been talking about. So we only have a minute or two left. I, I'd like to just sort of jump to the, to what I, I think might be a good punchline, which is, so how's sure. the business doing? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. There's a lot of ways to answer it. Uh, we're doing well. We, um, so we're profitable. I mean, because we're self-funded, we kind of have to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, without going like too deep, just because we only have a minute, we, we started the business as a pure software company. We realized we could extract a heck of a lot more value if we coupled our software with our expertise. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, really that's when things kind of took off. Um, and so what we then did is um, our goal now after kind of doing that model for about two years was how do we get back to more scalable, pure software? And um, we've essentially been doing that with this new product called ProfitWell. And so um, things are things are awesome, you know, in terms of, you know, we're 20 people, we're able to, you know, pay people decently. We're, you know, having a good time. We're also very serious about our goals. Um, and we're hiring, you know, in, in a good clip. And so, um, without, you know, without doing the numbers game, like that's essentially, you know, where we're at. And, um, I think for us, like from, uh, kind of taking a step back in a more kind of general sense, I think it's, it's like any business, we have our challenges. And so like, like, I feel like the, the proper answer to that question, like when you go networking is we're crushing it. Everything's going well, um, which is like, oh, great. Um, I hate that answer. I always say that's the bullshit yeah. line. Yeah. Oh, my God. And like when you see it on like, you know, videos and yeah. stuff, you always cringe. I, I think for us, though, like we're legitimately like we know the path. We know where we are and, and we have some wind in our sails. Um I think we're there's a little fatigue in a few places, and, and we're working to like fix that fatigue because there's a lot of there's a lot of problems with being self funded, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's a lot of um, issues with like well, like money's coming in, but like you know what if it doesn't, you know, and and you don't have necessarily that that huge coffer, especially when you're trying to grow aggressively. So you know we we're not running you know against the rails, but we're trying to hire to a point where 
all of a sudden, like, then it's going to be, you know, we have to hit our numbers, you know, mm. because if we don't, then it's, you know, we're going to have to you know, let some folks go, which we want to avoid. And so, um, yeah, long story short, things are going really well, but we have we definitely have some problems, you know, that we, that we need to solve, which hopefully is how everyone is right. Mm. Um, you know, in terms of their businesses. Well, Patrick, I can't thank you enough. What a delightful conversation. Um, you know, it's, uh, you, you, you really epitomize in so many ways the, the things that I believe are really important about leadership. And I appreciate your willingness to open up and talk about the journey. And I know the folks who listen will be grateful as well. So Awesome. Yeah. Well, Thanks. this has been great for me as well. So thank you so much. It's been a you know, not everyone really asks these types of questions. You know, they they want to talk about pricing and mm. you know what advice I can give them. And um, this is a little bit more reflective. So I appreciate your time as well. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. So that's it for our conversation today. I know a lot was covered in this episode, from links to books to quotes to images. So we went ahead and compiled all that and put it on our site at reboot.io slash podcast. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, you can find out about that on our site as well. I'm really grateful that you took the time to listen. If you enjoyed the show and you want to get all the latest episodes as we release them, head over to iTunes and subscribe. And while you're there, it would be great if you could leave us a review, letting us know how the show affected you. So thank you again for listening, and I really look forward to future conversations together.